0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning, saints. Go ahead and open your Bibles here in a moment or so. We're going to read from two pieces of scripture, so you're going to want to find two Two places in your Bible: the book of Second Timothy and the book of Second Peter. The book of Second Timothy and Second Peter. Second Timothy three, verses sixteen through seventeen. We're going to read that here in a moment, and then in the book of Second Peter, chapter one, verses nineteen through twenty-one. All right, two Peter three. I'm sorry, two Timothy three, two Peter one. My hope is that you are here and ready to hear uh, God speak to you this morning, Uh, not because I have uh, the expectation of some mystical experience taking place, uh, but because of the full expectation that God delights to speak to those who are his, those to whom he is drawing to himself through that thing that is in your hand, that thing that is in your lap, the word of God. God delights to speak through his word. So my hope is that you have the expectation to hear from God this morning. Go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to honor the God of the Word Um, by standing to our feet. We're going to read 2 Peter 1. We're going to read those verses first, and then we'll move to that second chunk of verses in 2 Timothy 3. So this is what our brother in Christ, the Apostle Peter, wrote. Notice concerning the Word, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, he says, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'll turn over to Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy three verses sixteen through seventeen. This is our brother in Christ, the apostle Paul. Listen now, he speaks the same truths. He says this, verse sixteen: All Scripture. Is breathed out by God, and it's profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. Sermon title this morning is Bible sufficiency. And the main idea is going to be this. God's word is sufficient for life and godliness. God's word is sufficient for life and godliness. What we have again in front of us is the word of God. And I love what the writer in the book of Hebrews says concerning the word. He says that the word of God is living, it is active. He calls it the double-edged sword. Remember what? Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 concerning the word of God, it's the weapon of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who wields this double-edged sword that is alive. That Bible in your lap is not dead. It is living. It is active. And what it does is it pierces and it discerns. It cuts us right to the very heart. It lays our minds open. It conforms us into the image of Christ as the Holy Spirit wields it in offensive and defensive ways in our lives. So we're going to pray that God would use the word this morning to not only continue to convince us of the call to delight in our Bibles, which is what we talked about last week, but that we would stand firm on the sufficiency of the Bible. It's sufficiency to lead God's people through this world, equipping us with all that we need for life and godliness. Okay, So let's pray for one another, and then we'll get into our sermon this morning. Holy Spirit, the double-edged sword wielder, we need you to wield the sword this morning. Wield it in such a way that it pierces our minds, challenging us, piercing our souls, piercing our spirit, piercing our hearts. Wield it in such a way that it leads us to discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart, giving us eyes to see like a lamp to our path so that we may walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel because we are being led and fed and chewing on and praying on and being conformed by and submitting to this living, active word. Holy Spirit, use me in a way that is mighty. Use me in a way that is clear. Bring a holy hush this morning as we seek to think very clearly concerning your word and the culture at large this morning. Help me, Father. Help my friends to know the motivations of my heart are to bring max glory to Christ. It is in your name that I pray this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen. What we're going to do this morning, think of it in in this way. What I'm going to do is try to lay out an argument for why we need Bible sufficiency. Then I'm going to give us two points concerning Bible sufficiency. Then I'm going to round the corner and try to be as uber specific, very, very specific in particular, very concrete, and trying to take the application of what we're going to be talking about to help us see and make connections of what these things look like concerning issues of race, concerning issues of justice, and some of the worldviews and philosophies that are being talked about in our culture at large. Again, if you remember last week, our sermon series began by talking about Bible delight. What we said is we want to be men and women, not ashamed of The Word of God, not ashamed of the God of the Word, but we want to be men and women who cling joyfully to the Word, knowing that all that God has revealed for us is for our good and for His maximum glory. So we're just going to keep fanning the flame of these ideas now by building on top of a Bible delight and talking about Bible sufficiency, the truth of Bible sufficiency. You see, God's Word brothers and sisters, God's word is truly sufficient. It is sufficient. It's not only the source that gives us a knowledge of God because it does do that. We know God's word reveals to us what we need to know concerning him, but it's also the source that's been granted to us so that we might know, Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, so that we might know... All things that pertain to life. Physical life, yes, spiritual life, most definitely, and then the godliness call that is laid on our lives as men and women who've been saved by the grace. Of our God, this is what the Bible is sufficient to do, given to know God, given so that we might know all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, for many people, this phrase that God's word is truly sufficient, for many people and unfortunately, this includes many Christians they do not agree with this statement. They do not see the Bible in this lie. They don't see it as something that is sufficient. Now they might say all the right things about the Bible, they might even be men or women who read the Bible regularly, but when it comes down to it, when the rubber hits the road, when life gets difficult, when deep problems Arise When the world rages against biblical truths that God has given us or when the culture begins to suggest or demand that issues surrounding gender, issues surrounding marriage, issues surrounding sexuality, issues surrounding family, issues surrounding race, issues surrounding justice, when the culture begins to say what the Bible says about these things is wrong, To adhere to what the Bible says about these things puts you on the wrong side of history. When the world, the culture begins to demand you need to stop believing in these things, oftentimes the sufficiency of Scripture seems to be the attribute of Scripture that is most quickly jettisoned As people begin to believe the siren call of culture, close their Bibles, stick it on the shelf, and then they begin to operate as if God's word is not all we need for life and godliness. Now, in what I'm about to say, what I'm not suggesting is that the only reason why people soften on the sufficiency of scripture is what I'm about to say. But I do believe what I'm about to say is one reason. And the reason is this many view the Bible as insufficient because they approach the Bible with a wrong set of expectations. And because they approach the Bible with a wrong set of expectations, they get frustrated with the Bible when the Bible fails to provide answers for their wrong set of expectations. You see, what they do is they approach the Bible, they approach God's Word as this encyclopedic compendium of answers written to tell us everything we might want to know about everything. But the thing is, that is not how or why the Bible was written. The Bible does not give us exhaustive information on every subject. But in every subject on which the Bible speaks to, it says only what is true and in its truth in the truth of the word of god that you have on your laps before you you have in your hand before you what we do have is we have enough knowledge to turn from sin we have enough knowledge to find a savior we have enough knowledge to make good decisions to please god to discern the times to walk wisely in this world to identify philosophies that are in the world human traditions that are in this world, not according to Christ and so on. So surely you've seen this before, right? Someone comes and says, you know like, am I supposed to go talk to Principal Peabody today or am I not? Am I supposed to go to this parking lot up the street or the one that I just passed? Am I supposed to turn into the left stall on the right or the fourth stall on, on the left? And so like, well, maybe the Bible has answers. Am I supposed to marry June or am I supposed to marry Jill? Am I supposed to go to this college or supposed to go to that college? Now I'm not saying God doesn't care about these things, but most people say these are big questions in life, they are and they can be, they go to their Bible and they begin to comb through and they say, man, I don't see any book, I don't see any chapter, I don't see any verse that tells me whether I should marry June or whether I should marry Jill. And then after you do that, bring the Bible, to the Bible, enough wrong expectations and you get disappointed enough times, you will eventually begin to do this. This close it up, stick it on the shelf, and say, this thing stinks, it is not good, it doesn't give me all that I need for life, it surely cannot help me with all I need for godliness, and you will begin to relegate the word of God to a position of insufficiency. Insufficiency. But brothers and sisters, if someone, if anyone, misses this point, That the word of God is sufficient for life and for godliness. If they miss this point, then it should be no surprise that they eventually draw that wrong conclusion of Bible insufficiency. They have a wrong set of expectations. It shouldn't be surprising that they draw a wrong conclusion to a wrong set of expectations. And the problem is... That when we draw this wrong conclusion, it's in this moment that the moment anyone does this, what they do is they set themselves on a dangerous trajectory where they make God's word and will begin to make God's word subservient to everything else instead of submitting everything else to the authority of God and his word. Do you see the subtle shift there? To buy into the untruth that your Bible is insufficient, you will begin to go somewhere else to find answers. You just will. And the moment you do that, you nudge yourself onto a trajectory to where you will begin to say, God's word, you're not unwilling to say it's it's a totally worthless endeavor. You want it for the little tidbits and the helpful. Whoop de doos and the little helps and five points to get you through life when you just need a little pick me up kind of book. You're not willing to say it's entirely insufficient. But in general, you chalk it up to being insufficient, and the moment you do that, what you are saying either explicitly with your mouth or implicitly with your actions to close your Bible, set it on the shelf, what you're saying is this thing, this word of God should be subservient to all other thoughts, philosophies, humans, traditions, worldviews that are around, and what I'll do is not submit those things to God and his word, I'll submit God and his word to these things. And that's a dangerous trajectory. You see, brothers, if, sisters, if, if we are unconvinced, unconvinced of the sufficiency of Scripture, I'll say it again, you and I will go somewhere else looking for answers to life's questions. And unfortunately, this is the case for far too many Christians who either, again, explicitly or implicitly deny the sufficiency of Scripture with their words, deny it with their actions, and as a result, they wind up being discipled by the culture and not being discipled by Christ. You see, our minds are not neutral. They're not neutral. The things we watch, the things we read, the things we listen to, they have a shaping effect on us. And if a person is convinced that their Bible is insufficient, it's not like their mind is now shaped by nothing. Like it can only be shaped by the word of God. And if we close the word of God, all of a sudden it just shifts into this magical sphere where nothing shapes our mind. That is just not how God has wired us as a part of his creation. And if a person is convinced that their Bible is insufficient, it's not like their mind is shaped by nothing. Rather, their mind is being shaped by something as they begin to look for and then hold to ways of thinking that are opposed to God's word and God's ways. Now, I believe the Apostle Paul knew this danger and is the reason why he addressed the Colossians in the way that he did. So if you go into the book of Colossians and you find chapter 3, verse 16, you will find Paul telling these brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters, here is my encouragement, let the word of Christ dwell in you literally, barely, mediocrately, moderately, hardly ever. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says, richly. In chapter 3, earlier up in that chapter, Paul said these brothers and sisters in Christ would put on the virtues of Christ. They would put to death the remaining sin that lingers within as they were shaped by the all-sufficient word of Christ, not by the siren call of the Colossae culture. And so if you go back into Colossians chapter 2 Paul really gets super specific when he's talking to these Colossians and he says as much guys you need to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and here is why because he says this guys listen you have received Christ Jesus as Lord you have received him as Lord you used to have all kinds of other things as your lord. Those things are now dead. You're alive in Christ and Jesus is your lord. So, here's his exhortation. Because Jesus Christ is your lord, walk in him. Walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Listen just as you were taught. So the word of God came to them. The word of God opened their eyes. The word of God opened their mind. The word of God exposed were sinners in need of a savior. They are saved by Jesus, received Jesus. Now they're called to walk in Jesus, rooted and built up in Jesus, just as you were taught about Jesus. I want all of this to be abounding in thanksgiving. I want you to continue to do this as you let the word of Christ, the word of God, the Bible, dwell in you richly. But then there's verse 8 in Colossians chapter 2. And Paul warns these Colossae believers in verse 8, warning them that there are various schemes that the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, what we talked about two weeks ago at the end of Ephesians 6, There are various schemes these spiritual forces of evil love to deploy in order to prevent you from walking in him, being rooted and built up in him, being established in the faith just as you were taught. Verse 8, so he continues, Brothers and sisters, see to it that no one takes you captive. Don't be taken captive. You might be taken captive. But see to that no one takes you captive. Captive by what? Captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Philosophy and empty deceit, that's according to three things. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's his warning. You see, Paul knows that we will be taken captive by something. Because Paul knows we're not neutral beings. We will be shaped by something we will either be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies, not according to Christ, or we will be taken captive according to Christ, walking in Christ, rooted and built up in Christ, and established in the faith as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Listen, the fundamental foundation for life and godliness is the sufficient word of God. That is the fundamental foundation for life and godliness. It is the sufficient word of God. But the moment we jettison Bible sufficiency, that's the moment we open ourselves to fall foul of what Paul warns against in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. The warning against being taken captive by these hollow and deceptive philosophies, not according to Christ. In other words, Paul is saying believers in Christ are obligated to reject any aspect of a worldly philosophy that does not jive with Christ. We're obligated to reject it. When it comes to issues of gender and marriage and sexuality and family and racism and justice and reconciliation and so on... We do not have to move beyond our Bibles for answers on what to believe, what to feel, and what to do in regard to these matters. Friends, listen, I say it again. God's Word, it is sufficient for life and godliness. It's sufficient for life and godliness. And the two points that we can press home which reveal these truths are these two points found in the text that we read earlier, 2 Peter 1 and 2 Timothy 3. So the first one out of 2 Peter 1 is this first point. God's word is sufficient because of its inspiration. I'm over here telling you God's word is sufficient. It's sufficient. It's enough. You don't need need more. You don't need extra. It's sufficient for life and godliness. So now I want to show you why it's sufficient and what it's sufficient to do. Why is it sufficient? It's sufficient because of its inspiration, because of where it comes from. Remember what Peter said, we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed. He says, know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, he says. Three different times, Paul refers to the prophetic word, the prophecy of scripture or just the prophecy and what he's saying about this prophecy of scripture the word of god is that none of it was ever produced by the will of man in plain terms peter is saying scripture is ultimately the work of god it's not like peter got up on some tuesday had a had a pretty uh Awful burrito from like La Bombas the night before. And he's just like, dude, this is, this is awful, man. I need to stay home today. You know what? I'll just write a portion of scripture today. And then sits down and puts Bible, Bible to pen. That's not the way it worked. Yes, men were used who wrote according to their own styles and personalities and equippings. But Peter is reminding us that ultimately these men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What this means is that from Genesis to Revelation, what this means is that that Bible in your lap, that Bible in your hand, God has revealed truth to you, truth that you need to know, truth you need to believe, truth you need to obey. And this truth has been revealed because God made a decision, I am going to reveal this truth and I'm going to carry these men along by the Holy Spirit. And so carried along by the Holy Spirit, men wrote down words in such a way that as they were taken up by the Holy Spirit, they were brought by His power to the goal of His choosing. The things which the men who wrote the scriptures, the things which they spoke while carried along, these were the Spirit's things. These were not their things. Therefore, the words of the Bible are God's words. They're God's words. And Peter says these spirit-inspired words of God which have been granted to us so that we might know and have what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. I would encourage you this afternoon, go home and read 2 Peter chapter 1 and listen to the argument he makes out. It's one of the richest chapters sitting in your Bible. Stitch this together, what can we say? God's spirit inspired word is sufficient because of its inspiration if god is good and god is true and god cannot lie and god is what is the one who inspired scripture then what we can say about scripture is that it is good it is right it is not wrong and it does not lie we do not need to add to the bible to meet today's challenges we do not need to subtract from the bible to mesh it with today's ideals Second point, notice now in 2 Timothy chapter 3, turn over to those group of verses, notice that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the apostle Paul grabs this exact same concept when he says, second, God's word is sufficient to equip. That's sufficient to equip. That's that opening phrase there, right? All scripture is breathed out by God is the Pauline way of saying what we just read in 2 Peter chapter 1. All scripture is breathed out by God Since it's breathed out by God, it is profitable. Profitable to do what? Teach, reprove, correct, train. Profitable to equip, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When Paul says all scriptures breathed out, he's just repeating what our brother, Brother Peter, has said. He says it is profitable. Profitable for what? Profitable for salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15, able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. It is profitable to shape us into the image of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16, teaching, reproving, correcting, training. And not only that, but it is profitable in that it's sufficient to show us how to walk wisely in the world around us. Verse 17, making the man of God, the woman of God, the person in Christ complete. Equipping them, that language of equip is the language of sufficiency. It is sufficient to equip you. Borrowing from Peter, equip you for life and godliness. Equipped to lead others to Jesus. Equipped to teach sound doctrine. Equipped to counsel others with the word. Equipped to walk out a life of godliness according to the word. And yes, even equipped to help us discern worldly philosophies not according to christ so here's my question for us this morning and this is where i want to try to get as uber specific as i can to take these truths about bible sufficiency and lay them on top of key phrases and key ideas key philosophies key worldviews that are being propounded by our culture and try to help us reason according to the word of god all right brothers and sisters so here's the question how do these truths concerning the sufficiency of Scripture help us walk wisely in our world today? How does the truth concerning the sufficiency of Scripture help us walk wisely today? Or to be more concrete, how does the sufficiency of Scripture help us be more discerning in the cultural conversation that is being being talked about right now concerning issues of justice, concerning issues of race, concerning issues of reconciliation that are being talked about all over the place. My argument is the Bible is sufficient to help us discern what the world is saying and go, does it mesh with the Bible? See, I want to answer these questions by bringing what we said earlier in the sermon concerning the need to approach our Bibles with right expectations together with three Three particular phrases that we may or may not be familiar with in the culture at large, but they are three phrases, brothers and sisters, which are prevalent in the cultural conversation at large. And thus, they are three phrases that call for our discernment according to the sufficient word of God that is sitting in your lap. The first phrase is this idea of critical theory. Specifically, when this worldview of critical theory gets laid on top of issues of race, it becomes known as critical race theory. And the other two phrases that I want us to talk about are phrases that describe two movements in particular, the social justice movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, in identifying these three phrases, here's what I am not saying, here is what I am not saying. Here is what I am not saying. And here is what I am saying. In calling out or identifying the Black Lives Matter movement, I am not saying black lives do not matter. I am not saying that. I'm not saying that. All you have to do is go to somewhere like Acts chapter 17 verses 24 through 27 to discern the heart of God concerning black lives mattering. The statement, the sentence, as a standalone fact, black lives matter, is unequivocally true according to the word of God. It's just just unequivocally true. I am identifying the movement that uses those exact same three words to identify a worldview and a theory of thought that is trying to talk about how we should live in this world as something that is antithetical to the gospel. When I'm talking about and mention the social justice movement at large, what I am not saying is that there is no social aspect to justice. I'm not saying that. Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, and I'm able to bear an amount of clarity when we try to discern the attribute of justice concerning God and the call of justice to do justice that shows up all throughout the prophets and in the Old Testament, you see it. In the new as well, that call to love widows, love orphans, love the sojourner, love the poor, that is loving people, doing justice towards people in a realm that revolves society, social. Biblical justice will have an effect in the realm of the society we live in. So when I say we should take umbrage with the social justice movement, do not hear me say Pastor John thinks we should not have works that flow from and correspond to our gospel belief. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that these movements and these phrases represent a worldview, which, and the worldview that informs them, the critical race theory worldview, what I am saying is this, critical race theory as a worldview and the fuel that critical race theory as a worldview pumps into social justice movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, they are to its core antithetical to the gospel and should not be embraced by Christians. But one of my concerns as a pastor is that these philosophies and worldview are being embraced by Christians and slowly finding their way into the church. And I believe part of the reason why this is so is because of what we said earlier in the sermon about approaching the Bible with wrong expectations. As the cultural conversation about race and justice and racial injustice and all these these phrases, as this conversation increases. Listen, I rightly, I rightly see many Christians trying to think these things out so that they can be as biblical as they can possibly be. I see it all over the place. And that is good and that is right. And brothers and sisters, we should be those types of, types of Christians. But where folks can and where folks are going astray is that they know their Bibles well enough to know there is no book, there is no chapter, there is no no verse that addresses critical race theory specifically. Like you can't go to book, chapter, and verse, thus saith the Lord, do not adhere to critical race theory. You can't find that. You're not going to find that. And we know that, right? There's no thus saith the Lord concerning... The manifesto produced and written per se by the Black Lives Matter movement. And so what happens is well-meaning Christians who know their Bible well enough to know, like, I don't know that there's a specific thus saith the Lord there, what they begin to do is close their Bibles and whether explicitly or implicitly, what they're doing is because they have that expectation, man, if this thing really matters, if I'm going to find answers, the Bible should be able to give me a very pinpointed thus saith the Lord. I know my Bible enough to know there is no thus saith the Lord. I begin to maybe wonder, is my Bible even equipped to be able to help me discern this life issue that's going on around me? I'm not sure it is. We begin to close it, and then we begin to go, is anyone out there helping me try to discern this brokenness that I see? And people are speaking up. Movements are arising. Activists are talking, saying, you see a problem, I see a problem. Here's my solution. And we go, well, maybe that is the solution, because I'm not sure the Bible gives me a solution. Surely there's going to be a solution out there somewhere. And whether knowingly or unknowingly, that decision to begin to look elsewhere for answers is leading many brothers and sisters in Christ to buy into the proposed solutions of a worldview like critical race theory in the social justice movements like Black Lives Matter, which hold to this philosophic worldview. But, brothers and sisters, and this is where the Bible and its efficiency comes in, but if we recognize critical race theory and the movements That it fuels. If we recognize critical race theory for what it is, it is a worldview. Then we can begin to see that the Bible does have answers to help us discern whether this worldview does mesh with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether it does not mesh with the Lord, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Borrowing Colossians 2, 8 language, we can begin to see does critical race theory and the movements which it fuels, is it according to Christ or are they not according to Christ? You see, like any worldview, critical race theory and the movements which flow from it, it sees the world. Listen, these are the categories here, okay? Dial in here. Critical race theory is a worldview that sees the world in a particular way and it's seeking to answer key categorical questions that any worldview worth its salt is trying to answer. All right? Worldviews, have big answers. Where did I come from? What's the origin of man? What's the view of man? What's the problem with man? What's the solution to the problem that I see? What is the hope for outcome if the solution is achieved so that the problem is eradicated? Worldviews, religious worldviews, secular worldviews, all of them try and flow in answering these categorical questions. You see, critical race theory has a particular view of humanity It sees a problem with humanity. It therefore has a proposed solution to the problem of humanity. It has a goal, critical race theory has a goal of what should happen when the problem is solved. Now the thing is, did you know that Christianity asks and answers the exact same thing and your Bible is sufficient to show you answers to the exact same thing? To these categorical questions, the Bible is sufficient to provide answers because the Bible tells us that Christianity also has a particular view of humanity. It too identifies a problem with humanity. It, too, provides the solution for this problem with humanity, and it, too, has a goal of what happens when the problem is solved. It's categories like these that the Bible is totally sufficient to answer, proving that the Bible is sufficient to help us discern that which is according to Christ and that which is not according to Christ. So here we go. The sufficiency of Scripture to help us discern shines bright when you compare the answers of critical race theory to these categorical questions against the answers of the gospel of Christ to these categorical questions. Here is how it compares out. I'm telling you, please dial in. Please listen. This is crucial. I'm wanting to equip you with God's word, God's ways of thinking, so that you can be missionaries who don't go, oh, I'm not sure how this goes. Or you can say, no, 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 man, this is how the gospel speaks into this issue. So in that idea, that category of humanity... According to critical race theory and the movements it fuels, man, if you would know how many articles and stuff I've read so I can try to truncate this stuff to you. So I'm just trying to tell you, I'm not pulling this out of nowhere. These are verifiable, articulated, written down Aims and goals that critical race theory and movements like the social justice movements, like Black Lives Matter movement, they are pulling from this worldview and they're setting things down on paper saying, because we hold this worldview, this is what we're trying to believe, this is what we're trying to accomplish, okay? If any of you want any of these sources, I'll be happy to inundate you with a flood of links, okay? So I'm just trying to let you know, it's not Pastor John up here, I don't got some bee in my bonnet and I'm not trying to grind some axe on a cultural issue, I'm just literally, man, my heart yearns for us to hear God's word and hold to these things, okay? So according to critical race theory concerning humanity and the movements that critical race theory fuels, it views, listen, it views humanity through the lens of power and it divides people into oppressed and oppressor groups for race based on skin color. But according to the gospel The view of humanity provided for us in in God's word is that God shows that humanity has equal dignity, equal value, equal worth, based upon being created in the image of God. That's the view of humanity. That's how they differ. Now, the problem is this. Because of its view of humanity... Critical race theory says the core human problem has to do with systems that oppress people of color. Because remember, it divides people into those who have power, those who do not have power, those who are oppressed, those who are the oppressors, based specifically, when it comes to the issue of race, based specifically on the color of someone's skin. So critical race theory says, because this is my view of humanity, here is the core problem with humanity right now. The core problem has to do with the systems that are in place that oppress people of color. It typically couches this thought in the language of whiteness, describing racism as racial prejudice found among the oppressor groups in power, namely white people, because they are the ones who have power in the systems and the structures of this world. But according to God's word, the gospel says the core problem with humanity is sin. The core problem with humanity is man's rejection of God's kingly rule over their lives. And sin can work itself out in any number of ways, one of which is the sin of partiality which can reveal itself in racial prejudice. The gospel says it's not just white people who can be racist as critical theory propounds, but anyone can because sin can arise in all of our hearts. So when you come down now to the category of the solution for this problem with humanity, critical race theory says that because it teaches that the oppressor is the one who is guilty and the oppressed are not guilty, the solution for the oppressor is to become woke and to do the work of becoming anti-racist. And for the oppressed, the solution is found when social liberation comes their way. So notice that because critical race theory gets the human problem wrong, it also gets the solution wrong. Do you see how this all just keeps feeding and compounding? It's got a wrong view of humanity. It's got a wrong view of the problem. And so now it has a wrong view of the solution. But according to the gospel of God, the solution to our sin is found in the saving work of Jesus. The solution to our sin problem is found in the saving work of Jesus. Because we are all equally guilty of sin. Remember, critical race there, he says, the ones who are guilty are those who are the oppressors. Those who are not guilty are those who are the oppressed. The gospel says everyone is equally guilty before a holy God because we were born and conceived in sin we're all equally guilty of sin salvation can only be found in jesus through repentance and faith in him the solution to our sin problem is the saving work of jesus our hope is found in being forgiven of sin and resting in the spirit's power to change us now the goal of critical race theory has as its goal a utopia where everything will become equitable but notice that it is all accomplished by our own efforts. You notice that? Critical race theory and the worldview and the movements it propounds, it is ultimately propounding a self-righteous form of works. It's a works-based righteousness. If you're in the oppressor group, you need to, you, notice, you need to start providing and putting forth the effort to stop being racist and then we will deem as the oppressed group when you have sufficiently atoned for your sin. It's all found on the human plane, rooted in self-effort. But the goal of the gospel is this. Your hope, your glorious hope of salvation is found not in your own effort to save yourself but it is found in the effort of Christ who was crucified on the cross and resurrected from the grave. It's not do more works, make the effort to bring salvation to yourself. It's no rest in the already finished work of Christ. The goal and the glorious hope of every believer is that in the fullness of time, because of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his sovereign purpose, God will bring it about to unite all things under the rule and the reign of Christ, the cosmic king. That's Ephesians 1. That is the glorious goal of the gospel, and that is what is coming. So friends, notice how the Bible is sufficient to help us see how the gospel is the answer our culture needs right now. And it's sufficient sufficient to expose how critical race theory and the movements it fuels are not according to Christ. Now let me say this. What can be commended, hear me right now, please. We're we're almost done. What can be commended about worldviews like critical race theory, about movements like the social justice movement or Black Lives Matter movement is this. They see a problem. They see a problem. They're looking left, they're looking right, and saying it is not right to be racist. And it is not right to be racist. James 2 tells us the sin of partiality can bear itself out in racial prejudice. The world, the unbelieving world, sees the brokenness of racism... And says this ought not to be. But the problem. Is that. With critical race theory. And social justice movements. Like Black Lives Matter. Is that in the end. They are trying to fix the brokenness. Of racism. With more brokenness. Because it's not. According to Christ. It's not according to Christ. Broken worldviews. Broken philosophies, broken human traditions, not according to Christ, will never be able to fix the brokenness of sin. And brothers and sisters, this is why. According to the Spirit-inspired, all-sufficient Word of God, the only solution to humanity's sin problem... The solution to the racial injustice that is just pressed up in all of our faces right now. The solution to the sin problem of partiality which reveals itself and can reveal itself in the form of racial prejudice. This sin problem has one solution and it's the sin forgiving work of Jesus Christ which he accomplished on the cross. That's why as Christians, when our friends are saying, run to these theories, hold up these things, do the work of being anti-racist, what we need to say is, no, we need to look to the finished work of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Guys, don't don't let all of the stuff we've been preaching out of Ephesians walk out your back door. Remember what Jesus Christ accomplished through his blood on the cross. He accomplished the vertical reconciliation between God and man. And Paul said, in that moment when Jesus come blowing out of the grave, what he accomplished accomplished was the horizontal reconciliation between jew and gentile these ethnicities he is the one we need he is the sole redeemer he is the grace giver he is the hostility abolisher he is the wall breaker he is the race reconciler he is the justice bringer And it is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we have hope. Hope of peace with God and true hope of peace with one another. So brothers and sisters, if we're going to be men and women known for our Bible delight, then I pray and hope that we will also be men and women known for Bible sufficiency. Let's pray. Father a lot of words were just spoken and you can knock me over with a feather if we're all sitting here going that was perfectly explained and I've got no questions whatsoever about what we just heard I'm a finite man who can only speak finite words, and so that's why I need you infinitely holy, infinitely good, infinitely pure Holy Spirit to take the words that have been spoken, pierce our hearts, and wield the sword that you love to wield, the sword of the Word of God, and challenge us, and change us, and grow us in ways that conform us to the image of Jesus. Jesus, would you do this for your name's sake? Would you do this for your glory so that we may be men and women who walk wisely in this world not only in love with the Word of God, but truly, ultimately, forever in love with the God of the Word. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.